0: Will anything change? Because I don't use the word lightly. It feels like an apartheid state. One of the things that really struck me is you see very clearly
1: how these institutions, these laws are not built just to oppress people, but it legitimized the oppression. And that's actually incredibly horrifying. There's a fatigue to all of these atrocities, but I think it's not just a list of atrocities. It is a very deep dive into what happened to specific people, who they were before, who they were after, how they come out,
0: how their thinking has evolved. You can't look away from it. Like if we continue to look away from it, the problem's only going to get worse and worse and worse and harder to solve. I don't know if there is a solution. Reading a comic book isn't going to solve. (laughs) <laughs> piece in the Middle East. But I do think part of the solution is understanding both sides.
1: So, Roman, I just hope we can get through talking about this week's comic without being cancelled.
0: Is it because we're reading Joe Sacco's Palestine?
1: Yes, and it deals with a totally uncontroversial subject that we're both really equipped to talk about. (sighs) I'm Roman Segal. I'm Ryan Joe. And
0: we are two dudes heading into occupied territory. I'm sure, I'm sure it'll be fine. This week, to commemorate al nakba we're reading Palestine, Joe Sacco's seminal work of cartoon journalism. Tell me more about al Nakba. <sighs> yeah, al Nakba literally translates to the catastrophe, referring to the destruction of the Palestinian homeland in May of 1948, which led to the mass exodus of at least 750,000 Arabs from Palestine. While for many historians, the process began decades earlier, to many in the region, it refers to the ongoing persecution, displacement, and occupation of the Palestinian people, both in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, as well as in the Palestinian refugee camps throughout the region. All in all, a super shitty situation. Yeah. So to commemorate al Nakba, we're reading Palestine, Joe Sacco's seminal work of cartoon journalism. From December of 1991 to January of 1992, a young cartoon journalist named Joe Sacco would travel to Israel and occupied Palestine and embed himself with the Palestinian people to hear their stories and see how they lived their everyday lives. Saka wanted to get around the sanitized story the Western media was portraying to emphasize the history and the plight of the Palestinian people as a group and as individuals. The book was actually published as a nine-issue run by Fantagraphics from 1993 to 1995, with a graphic novel adaptation published later to a much wider audience. Palestine has been the recipient of the American Book Award, was named as one of the top 100 English language comics of the last century. Sacco has since gone on to publish numerous other works of cartoon journalism covering the Middle East, Bosnia, Serbia, and the Native American plight, for which he's received recognition from Time Magazine, he's won an Eisner, he's won a Harvey, and the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. And that makes it required reading. Absolutely. So... In Palestine, Sacco positions himself as the Westerner confronting a reality unfamiliar to most Americans at the time, concentrating on his personal experience and perspective, as well as the stories of the people that he encounters, with some light history thrown in for good measure. Conversations are documented over tea, roadblocks, police action, taxis, and checkpoints and curfews, which became all too familiar set pieces in Sacco's narrative journey. So, Ryan, once again, this is another heavy but necessary read. How'd you find it? Yeah, so coming from the perspective
1: of somebody who knows about the Israel and Palestine conflict through Western news, it was an eye opener for me. What you mentioned earlier about Sacco's goal to really zoom in and look at how this impacts the Palestinian people—that's that's what he does very much. You are right in people's faces. It's not a, a bird's eye view that you normally get when you read the when you read the the news articles about it. It is. Up close and personal, Saka was interviewing people about their perspectives. And what you get is such a divergence of perspectives people who were wronged in very in different ways, who reacted in, in different ways, who have completely different perspectives. That's the other thing. Like, there is just like such a variety of, of opinions when you look at all of the different people who, all of the different Palestinians who are impacted, which really should go without saying but one of the things that this really hammered home to me is how much of a clusterfuck this situation is and how honestly i don't see any avenue for there ever being anything remotely like peace the wounds and the slights and the offenses and the assaults they just they've just been going on for too long there's just no way that there can be anything peaceful that comes from this situation
0: What's frustrating about this book, it's not the book, right? It's not the book's fault. Um this book was the, written in the nineties. Yeah. And yeah, right. What, what were we doing in the nineties? Reading Wizard magazine and, and image comics, right? And back then it wasn't I, I would say it the plight of the Palestinian people, maybe it's not in vogue, but I think people are more aware of it today. Or maybe I've just grown up into a progressive, informed, you know, world traveling guy. But Like, the shit is the same, if not worse. Thirty years on, nineteen ninety one and nineteen ninety pre nine eleven, right? I mean, yeah, before all of that rabid prejudice against
1: it was there, right? But way, but before that, the prejudice against Muslims
0: went completely rabid. Yeah, and it's just, I don't know, man. It's there is a hopelessness to it, but. And again, it's it's really hard to separate myself from, call it uh, Western audiences, because I really, I do feel in my heart of hearts that there is a greater awareness of the Palestinian plight. Now, is there a hopelessness to the solution? I don't know. I do think awareness in journalism solves things, but yeah, I hate to bring it back to what's going on in the world today. To be clear, Palestine is happening in the world today, but with Ukraine, but we're all clenching our pearls about what's going on in Ukraine and what is happening there is terrible terrible shit has been happening in palestine since the 70s right to read this in- i had a a close friend also named ryan from new york his sister he's jordanian palestinian he's jordanian arab and his sister went back and i think married a guy in gaza and so she goes back but her husband can't come out right and so my friend ryan other ryan has been to ramallah and he's spoken about these things and the taxicab situations of like getting in, getting out before curfew, checkpoints, all of these things. It's a way of life. And there's like this moment where Sako talks. There's so many moments in this book, but where Sako talks about if someone feels like they have absolute power, they're going to behave a certain way. And if someone feels absolute powerlessness, yeah, how are they going to behave? And it's that scene with the little boy, right, that's being assaulted by the police.
1: But you do see that
0: enacted throughout the book, right?
1: I mean, no. the Israelis have absolute power, both in terms of their arms, also in terms of the law and the army that's backing them. And of course, the Palestinians have none. And and there is a complexity to how people react, like not every Israeli, of course, is, is evil. But definitely, in terms of the stories that Sacco is getting are from Palestinians who've often been tortured, who've been arrested, who've been thrown in prison camps. So of course, they're Relationship with the Israelis is incredibly fraught. But even one thing I actually credit Sacco for. Even then, he's he's still trying to peel back more layers, right? So you have that this sequence where somebody is talking about his time in a prison camp and the way the Israelis would cycle out. The soldiers, so there'd have to be soldiers that would come in, and they would mm-hmm. be very—they would be assholes. But eventually, they
0: would start. They're only to there for develop, a month or so, right? They would yeah. develop
1: a rapport with the Palestinians who were imprisoned, and then they would be out, and then there'd be a new group of bastards who come in, and then that cycle would repeat. And the point of all of that was to keep. I think, uh, well, as Sako tells it, I think it's important to to. To emphasize that everything that's happening here, it is journalism, but it's also very clearly viewed through Sako's point of view. But the point that Sako was making is that that the whole purpose of these prisons was to keep the Israelis from humanizing the
0: Palestinians. Mm-hmm. You see a, a growing cynicism. By Sako, like as he tells the story, more tea, more tea, another story. There's a time when he's talking to an old man. He's like, kind of, come on, I got to get to my next interview because he's just like trying to get through things over two months. And e- even in the narration, he catches his own cynicism and then something happens. I, I, at least in the narrative, for me as a reader, something would happen because you're feeling that cynicism. It's almost too much and you become numb to it. There, there's another interesting moment towards the end of the book, right, after Sako spent a lot of time in occupied territory, and he goes back to Jerusalem or Tel Aviv Aviv. to meet up with some friends, yeah. And he's talking to two Israeli girls and the gentle pushback of it. And Sako, having just spent time in the occupied territory, is pushing on them for their complicitness. And the pushback from them, it's it's just very interesting. I don't even want to comment on it. It's just people are tired of it, but at the same time, it's like, It's hard to draw equivalencies, right? But as I think about black people in America, right? George Floyd was when the rest of us fucking woke up to it, right? But I think about apartheid in South Africa, like the people were living it. But something had to change for the rest of us to wake up. The question is, will anything change? Because and I don't use the word lightly, it feels like an apartheid state. Yeah, well, It, it is,
1: isn't it? So one of the things that really struck me, Is you see very clearly how these institutions, these laws are built to oppress people. Actually, not built to just to oppress people, but it legitimized the oppression. There was that episode where they were talking about torture, and the Israelis brought in a judge to look over the treatment of
0: this one guy in
1: and out over like a month, right? Right. and, And he's like, well, yes, they did go too far, and they should be i don't know punished or something like chastised for that but it was necessary but send it back for the, anyway. of the state right so that actually legitimizes uh torture by wrapping this rule of law around it and that's actually incredibly horrifying to me because you might want to say well okay it's just these army, you've got some bad seeds in the army, but no, you you bring in a judge to really look at it and say, oh no no no, no. this is the be all end all. We we're going to publicize this. They went a little too far, but it's still necessary, and that's horrifying. And you see this in and out. There's another sequence about the tomatoes where they were saying, well, you need like five permits to just go a couple of miles. So you have these institutional structures built really to oppress the Palestinians.
0: Yeah, and what's upsetting about this book, man, it's just like, okay, we can rail at apartheid and the civil rights movement and Jim Crow America and Japanese internment, Abu Ghraib, Guantanamo, and with some of these things like, oh, those are extreme situations, oh, that was decades ago. This book, Palestine, it was written in the 90s, but so much of this persists. And it's not like, oh, there's another book that we want to read soon about the Uyghurs in China. We're like, oh, well, that's them. That's Russia. What's Russia's doing? That's what China's doing. But like, this is one of our allies. And, and to be clear, the Arab states <laughs> surrounding the Middle East, they're, they're not great either, to be clear, right? Like, you've got what's going on in Saudi Arabia. You've got, or literally even the Palestinian people are like, there's a moment where they're like, all the other Arab states... They're just using us for their own propaganda. They don't care about us. Saddam Hussein's the only one. And it's just like... Right. It's just... I don't want to say it's hopeless, but it's frustrating that this is happening so close. This is happening in the now. This is happening with one of our allies as the West. uh, And we're letting this happen for convenience versus... Sako also brings up some of
1: the Palestinian, and, and this actually comes up when during that conversation you referenced with the two women in Tel Aviv. Mm-hmm. He brings up the and he Sako does does show the Palestinian factions turning on each other. Mm-hmm. There is a cruelty to each other, and and as the Israeli women mentioned, of course, the Palestinians are committing crimes against the Israelis. Now, who's ultimately Mm -hmm. at fault, right? Now, it's this endless cycle. And I think Sako also alludes to that. He has this list early on of, okay, these Palestinians were killed, then these Israelis were killed, and these Mm Palestinians, you know, it's on and on and on. And at the end of the day, it's so difficult to, it's it's impossible Mm -hmm. to disentangle fault, if you will. that's, That's just such a simplification of it anyway. And then, of course, what the women mentioned is that they're fatigued thinking about all of this, right? They hear it every day there's nothing new to them and there's a fatigue to having to listen to all of these atrocities but i think that's what makes sacco's work so important is that it's not just a list of atrocities it is a very deep dive into what happened to specific people who they were before who they were after how they responded to it and they all it's always surprising these people who go through this gamut how they come out, how their thinking has evolved, and also Sako's reaction to it, because this is all overlaid with Sako's cynical, sometimes sarcastic, sometimes self-effacing narration.
0: Yeah, it's it's easy to get lost in the macro of it, and what Sako does is he tries yep. to bring humanity because he goes into the micro of it, the, the individuals, the individual stories, because, and, and I think that's, Why I feel like this should be required reading. There is another book about Israel that I really want to read by journalist Sarah Glidden in her book, How to Understand Israel in 60 Days or Less. And she's a Jewish American who does her birthright trip back to Israel. And she does confront these things, like as a woke, progressive, American, Jewish woman confronting that and talking to uh, the Jews of Israel. It's complicated but at the same time, some of it is like some of this is black or white. And why are we complicit in looking the other way out of convenience? And I say this about tons of things, right? Not just Israel-Palestine, but what we did to Native Americans and uh, what we have done to black and brown people in this country. And it's, you can't look away from it. That's, that's kind of my point. Like, the, if we continue to look away from it, the problem's only going to get worse and worse and worse and harder to solve. I don't know if there is a solution or what the solution is, but the solution isn't to keep looking away, I guess, because then you continue to commit or allow these atrocities to happen.
1: Yeah, but here's the other issue, and Sako is looking at it, and one of the things he does bring up frequently is unreliable narration, right? It's about how biased and incomplete his opinion is. He's very, very cognizant of making sure that you know you know that this is just his point of view and it might be flawed it might be wrong it might be a misinterpretation and so i think that was actually really smart of him to, i mean, probably maybe the only way he could have really written this because there's no way you can say this is definitively what happened this is definitively the case it's always going to be veiled through you know the compli- the compli- the the situation has just been such a f- so, so fucked up for so long, so tangled up for so long that there's no way to really have an objective view of what's happening. You almost, in a way, have to view each incident in isolation. But of course, each incident that happens is tied to something else that happened before, something else that happened before, something else that happened before. So it's this incredibly, I don't know, I would say that like, yeah, you could, you can look at it at this, at, at the situation and not forget it, but at the same time, your opinion is just going to be so limited, and it's almost impossible
0: to appreciate the full scope of the, the fuckery here. Well, yeah, look, to be clear, reading a comic book isn't going to solve <laughs> peace in the Middle East. People have been trying to do it for a while. But I do think part of the solution is understanding both sides because the reason Sako comes into this, mm-hmm. the reason Sako rejects trying to understand the Israeli side is because. That's what our media diet feeds us, one side right. of this. And it, it's really weighted to one side versus another, right? You have so many of the Palestinians cynical at Sako, the journalist in their midst, saying, we've had journalists coming here for years, and it hasn't changed a goddamn thing, effectively, right? Like, And so th- there's a frustration that why is the story not getting out? And it, does it take a subversive comic book to get the story out because it's not being covered in the mainstream press? It's just like- and again, this is where Sako is a very interesting character and a creator because before Palestine, he, I believe, did some writing about the Balkans. And he's kind of gone back and forth between the Balkans and the Middle East. His more recent book from I think a year or so ago was about Native Americans in America, right? And just like one or two very like specific instances. Again, another thing we should read. And I come back to required reading. I'm not saying let this book change your opinion. I'm just saying, don't have an opinion without reading yeah. a lot more. And, you know, and this is a pretty accessible story.
1: Well, I'm curious if Sako has a developed opinion about you know, because you can see like he's 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 thrust into these situations without really knowing what to expect, and his opinion is to the extent that he ever shares it, he he it almost in fact it's interesting when he does share his opinion or when, it's usually when the Palestinians ask, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And you always Mm -hmm. see Joe Sacco always draws himself being like, ah, 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 ah. So I think he's like hyper aware of the inadequacy of whatever it is he personally feels. How he never probably have enough information or understand enough to really have a fully formed opinion. Who does, really? He's really interested in cataloging the experiences of the Palestinian people that he interviews. And to the extent that there is an opinion to be formed from this. It's going to be your own opinion, your own opinion being the reader's. I think Sako's only agenda is really kind of show what different Palestinians have been going through. And I also appreciate that he's trying to address different things, like what is the role of feminism here? Do the Palestinians ever turn on each other? Recruitment of, of children mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, what their childhood mm-hmm. is like so it's not just like torture story after torture story after torture story, though there is actually there's actually this moment where 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 Sako says, Yes, I always am interested in hearing the details of a torture story, mm-hmm. almost self-effacing. So Sako actually he's he's trying to address a wide breadth of of topics and issues. And you get different fragments of things, but never like really one definitive which it's not the goal.
0: It's it's it seems never Well, yeah, you have to digest it, sit with it. And then zoom out and have a podcast conversation. About it, right? Like, or I, I really do think this this is a book like the, I keep coming back to like the theme of required reading, like part of this podcast is great because we read something and then we talk about it with each other, right? And flesh each other's out. And that's where a classroom setting for these things is important, right? Like this is this is the power of literature in schools, right? Like, would, will this one day be a banned book? I hope not. It's been out long enough, but I can see a world in which. Maybe you shouldn't be carrying this driving around Israel. Because there's even a moment where he's like, shit, at the checkpoint, are they going to look in my journal and see the uh, shit I've been writing and talking about? Like, and that's crazy. Like, I remember traveling in China and I was reading a Farid Zakaria book. And I was like, it was about in defense of a liberal democracy. And I remember my wife asking me, she's like, kind of cover that up. Like, literally wrap <laughs> a grocery bag around it while we're traveling in China with this book. And, and it's like, is that where we're heading, right? Versus no, this this should be read, this should be discussed, et cetera, et cetera. One thing we were talking
1: about earlier before we started recording was comics as journalism. And we mentioned that with Sarah Glidden as well. But we've read a lot and over the course of our podcast we read. Hey man,
0: you like you like fictional horror.
1: I like real life horror. Oh, I <laughs> I, I, yeah, that's true. You did give yeah. us the Ukrainian and Russian notebooks, which is another example of... Uh, right. But then of, of you also gave journalism. us the grass
0: and waiting, right?
1: Right, there is the grass. The waiting was a fictionalized account, of, but the grass, I guess, it was more reporting. And then Kent State and my friend Dahmer Year, as well. Year of the Rabbit, right? Year of the Rabbit, right. And it's interesting seeing the different, the different modes of tackling these issues. And how, it's also interesting how a lot of the cartoonists are hyper aware that everything that's depicted is veiled through their eyes through their point of view and which inherently Mm. makes it slightly unreliable and i think that's especially true with like cartoon journalism or graphic journalism whatever i don't even know if there's a term for
0: it well it's 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 interesting really quick that the the term cartoon because this isn't like jim lee alex ross art right let's do hyper realism of what does superman look like no this is The cartoon, even Jean Lunyang, and we've read a couple of his journalist attempts via Boxers and Saints, which oh, is right, historical in our dragon hoops. But it's that cartoony nature of the illustration. There's still a mastery of sequential art, but that almost disarms you and makes you let your guard down for the, the source code to get into your veins. If it's realistic, right, you start thinking about, oh, this should be
1: photojournalism in a way you can't deviate too much from reality if this were like painted like Alex Ross but because it's a cartoon you I think inherently accept that certain things are going to be exaggerated Fair mm-hmm. is going to be did he illustrate it exactly the way he saw it of course not people don't really look like this and I Especially think that Saco.
0: man that guy <laughs> he does not draw himself
1: well and I think that's important right because then you get over this hump of trying to be you know at where I work, there is this focus on, hey, is this true? Can you verify it? And with illustrated journalism, there's less of that pressure. It's really more about, I think, I'm not to say that the incidents that people talk about didn't happen, but really the focus is really more on the emotional truth of, okay, mm-hmm. so this happened. How do you feel about it? Joe Saacco is. Going through these different refugee camps covered in mud, and the way he illustrates it, you feel it. You feel how dirty it is, and how uncomfortable these things are, and how claustrophobic it, it is. Is that, you know, a realistic depiction? Is that the most? Is it an accurate depiction? I don't know, but it's something that makes you feel as if you are there, and that that in and of itself makes it incredibly effective. More effective, I think, than if you were just reading a, a news article or if you were looking at a photo.
0: Well, again, it's a way to break through the clutter. It's subversive in so many ways, right? The subversive in the way you can pick it up as a comic book and have a enjoyable is the wrong word, but uh, an entertainment like experience as you're consuming it, you can take it at your own pace. It's not prose. It's but, and again, it's also subversive in the sense that it gets around traditional journalism tropes, the clickbaity nature of it. Is this a bestseller? Maybe. I don't know. Will people listen to this podcast and go read it? Maybe. But, like, I, again, this is where I think cartoon journalism has a real edge. Even historical fictions, right? Like Boxers and Saints and uh, The Waiting. Like, I think there's still. There's a message, there, there's a message, there's sometimes a historical context that is true that you wouldn't have been able to get otherwise, that, that wouldn't have been accessible to many people. Why is that? Well, I don't know. It's Jen Wang said, right? Remember when she was talking about the, the Prince and the Dressmaker, she was like, I want to make a book that someone could fool their dad into letting them buy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It almost
1: disarms you initially. And then once you get in, it just, it cooks you i don't know i don't actually know if that's accurate. yeah
0: it's, it's gonna be a little harder to like uh sneak this one into into their reading library because it's called palestine <laughs> you know what you're getting into when you read it but yeah it's still um i don't know another thing uh, worth saying like we talk about it's not just all torture porn it is there's these nuanced human stories and something saka really illustrates well and again I have a soft spot for it, probably because I do have kids. But there's the moments when he's talking to children. There's that moment with the ten-year-old girl who just won't stop peppering him with questions about what his life is like outside of of occupied territories. So she's like, "Are the do these yeah. factions not exist where you live?" Can you do this? Do you not live with your entire family? You live far away from me. And these, believe it or not, these are somewhat innocent questions that I've had kids in foreign countries ask me, but through the context of a girl living in occupied territory who will probably never know anything else. They don't have papers. They can't leave. It's hard.
1: Well, and then Sako's talking about her and his the buddy of his who's been showing him around says, so a girl like that, if I were her parents, I would buy her a computer. And that's really sad because that's, that's not really an option for her, but she is like an incredibly curious, inquisitive kid and her opportunities are going to be stifled because of, of where she lives
0: the where, where she
1: had the misfortune of being born right yeah and, and the fact that she's palestinian in israeli controlled
0: territory <sighs> yeah this is probably the second or third book of his that i've read over the years and what else have you read i have uh, not read sako before oh wow uh, yeah, yeah so believe it or not i actually again this is accidental discovery at the library you go to a library and you don't want to read all the Marvel and DC stuff and shelved with all the other graphic novels or these things, and you judge a book by its cover. So the first Saka book I actually read was Footnotes on Gaza. I recently, last year, I read Paying the Land, his book about Native Americans. I've skimmed most of Safe Area Gorjada, which is his book about the Balkans. And he's actually also done another book, I believe, about Sarajevo, not just the fixer, but I picked up his stuff over time because... It's just an interesting snapshot into it with historical context. You're going to get, and, and I walk away knowing more about something than I would have before. Right. It's funny years ago, my wife and I were in Croatia, right on the, the Serbian border. And we were in one of their national parks, which was the site of pretty intense fighting. And I'm telling my wife this. she's like, Oh, you read that in the lonely planet, right? Before we drove up here. I was like, no, I actually read that in a comic book about two years ago. So it's a, uh, it's kind of nuts, but I, just, I, I love that this this work exists, and other people are taking on the mantle. He's not the only person telling stories like this.
1: Yeah. I just want to just say how beautiful Sako's art often is. I don't. He has these splash pages where he's depicting the refugee camps. They are incredibly detailed, and just do such a, a wonderful job, just conveying, um, you know the the. The squalor that exists,
0: and well, it's like way- page one forty-seven. Like it's like a Where's Waldo, but a very dark and tortured Where's Waldo. <laughs> very dark. Like that's your that's your tagline for this episode: a very
1: dark and tortured Where's Waldo.
0: <laughs> but even beyond his splash pages, yeah, it's, he's so enviable as an artist. There's this like frantic nature to the angles and even like yeah, that not just the perspectives of the composition shots that he makes, but Literally, like the angles of his text boxes are stressing me out. That's like reading. Yeah, that
1: yeah, What I really actually like that, right? Because so yeah, he didn't yeah. even talk about how he tells the story. Um, it, yeah, he has these like little bits of text, or sometimes it's longer bits of text. But yeah, he, and he twists the caption boxes, and I think that just does a, a wonderful like. It just, as you said, it stresses you out to read. It feels like there's so much happening. You're bombarded. You have to keep your focus keep pace. Yeah. keeps changing. Yeah. And, and, and in a way that's very much like his experience in Palestine, there's like always so much shit that happens and it's hard to keep track of everything for him. And I think he's, you know, conveying that through his, not just through his art, but also in the way he handles the word balloons. I think people often forget that the word balloons, the dialogue and the captions are very much as, as, as important a part of the
0: design of the comic as like the panels and the actual images. Yeah. There's even a moment, I can't recall exactly what was happening, but like the police were cracking down on a protest and he's like in the thick of it. And Mm. you see that frantic narration of where he's like, my teeth are chattering. I got to get it for the comic. I got to get this. I got to stay here and watch this for the comic. And it's like, and that's the only way he's surviving. It's just, it's it's really interesting. It's more often than not, Sako doesn't portray himself as a character, but usually at the beginning of the story time or the beginning of the moment, he shows up. And, and it happens intermittently enough that you look forward to those moments because he has been narrating and you want to see how he's holding up because he is your lens. He is the every man through which you're experiencing this way.
1: Yeah. And there's also this attempt to ingratiate himself too. There's this moment, still one of the boys, right, where he's hanging out with these Palestinians and they're just making these jokes and he's trying to – and he's try- also oh, yeah. making these yeah. jokes to – to fit in. They're a little bit misogynistic. And he's you know in a way he's criticizing himself and the way he's going about getting these stories. There's an earnestness to him. There's a haplessness to him.
0: What's interesting about that one moment, though, is he purposely puts it in to punctuate the end of the feminism chapter. Oh, you know, that's a great. Yeah. Yeah. He tells this whole story about the women's plight in Palestine and how it is a lesser part of the I'm not even sure if I'm saying that correctly, but like and at the very end he shows himself sitting around with three men making these kind of offhand misogynist jokes. And it's like, ha 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 ha. ha.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting, right? His decision to undercut himself. And it, it's it's uncomfortable, right? You're trying to cut through all of the mess of this really fucked up moral situation and trying to make sense of it. And I think there's this danger as a journalist, you're you're almost like putting yourself above it, the voice of reason as it were, which is a bit of an arrogant position to try to put yourself in. And so he has this moment where he's interrogating the role of feminism in Palestine. And then, of course, he purposely undercuts himself with that moment with the two guys where he's making these jokes. It almost says, okay, I'm not the authority here at the end of the day. Still one of the boys. It, it, in a way, it, it also makes you trust him more because he's showing his own weakness, his own vulnerability. And he does this throughout, right? He says, well, ah, I got to get more conflict. You got to have conflict. If you're going to have a a great graphic novel, it's almost acknowledging his own weakness, his own bias in trying to get the story. Ironically, it makes him a little bit more, in a way more reliable as a narrator. You know, when somebody can acknowledge their own weakness, you tend to trust them more.
0: Yeah, exactly. He's establishing trust as a credible narrator and it, it's a subtle breaking of that fourth wall. And he doesn't do it with a wink and a nod. He does it in a very self-deprecating way.
1: He it does it, it, does it in, the, in the way the stories are ordered, which, I, yeah, that was a great observation. So, Ryan, I got to ask, would you recommend this to someone? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's an incredibly important book. Again, I think Joe Sacco... He's one of those cartoonists that I was very aware of, but never read. And I think, in large part, I was, when his stuff was coming out, I was not really into reading about Palestine. Mm-hmm. I was into reading about Spawn. So <laughs> he was somebody I, I knew about, but never bothered to pick up. And I, I'm glad I did because the story he tells these really compelling, awful stories, he shines a light onto something that I understood only in the abstract and they, I mean, still only understand it in the abstract, but I feel right. I've learned a little bit more about it. I've seen how people were genuinely affected and he humanizes people who are by and large seen as statistics. I mean, and, and that's important, right? It, it was one yeah. of the reasons why I think grass was so compelling also, right? It, it, it depicted people who's, Really, really depicted and told the story of people whose stories often aren't told. And I think Sacco does that with Palestine.
0: Yeah, the thing I absolutely, of course, would recommend it. That's why I brought it to this pod. But something I've been struggling with as we've read a lot of these heavier works is what's the right age for people to read it? Because I really do think you should make kids read things before they're ready to read them. And not my daughter who's six, but like, I don't think you need to be a 17 or 18-year-old to read it. And I'll tell you a story about that in a second because I think the biases of the world will creep in on you too fast, what your parents think, what the media tells you. And there's books like this or People's History of the United States that the sooner you read them, the better, because then when the traditional narrative is thrust upon you, you can be like, well, yeah, but what about... And and, and the story I want to tell you is about March, right? Like another book I really want to read on this podcast by the late Congressman uh, John Lewis and Andrew Iden. But I bought March, the trilogy slipcase edition for my nephew for Christmas this past year. My nephew is 10. And I bought him in the past books like Bone and I'm going to buy him Usagi Yojimbo. This year I'm really excited about it. But my sister just implicitly trusts that whatever Uncle Ruman buys her son is going to be fine. And my nephew is a really smart kid, and he's half black, half Indian, and he devoured the book like he does every comic I send him. But it left him with more questions <laughs> that he had to bring to his mom and dad. And I got an un- a frustrated phone call from my sister, and I apologized profusely. And I'm like, "Oh, I'm sorry. I-, I guess maybe he wasn't ready." But I've been thinking a lot about this, Ryan. Like, at what age should kids be reading this? Like, and this is the controversy we have in America right now. Should books like gender queer be in the library? I think they should right now should they be required reading maybe maybe not right but it's like we get to greater empathy and understanding if people read this a little bit before they're ready or before we're ready for them to read it like I, I I've been thinking a lot about this topic because I have friends kids and nephews and nieces who are coming of age and What's the right time to get this? I can't keep buying. There's only so many bone graphic novels, right? Yeah. There is an infinite amount of Usagi Yojimbo, which even that has some dark stuff, but it's fiction and it's rabbits. So it's okay. I don't know. I don't,
1: Well, look, I'm not really an authority on kids, not having any. My instinct would be to give them the book when they start asking questions, I suppose, because the subject is something that they have started to think about. And maybe now's the time to introduce a, a, a different perspective than, than what they were getting in the media or from YouTube or from whatever. Um, but I don't know. I don't know if that's like a hard and fast rule. And I also feel it, obviously, it, it depends on the kid, their maturity level, and then the the extent to which you're, you're willing to have a conversation with them afterwards as well. If you just give them Palestine and you're just like, all right, <laughs> well, have a good let one, enjoy it. it. Let
2: you let know, the yeah, it. yeah,
1: yeah. So, so. Are you willing to talk to them about it? Maybe that's something else that you need to consider. But I think the real question is, when are you going to give them Junji Ito? <laughs>
0: <laughs> A little bit later. Here's what's funny. Junji Ito's got nothing on Josako, and I would rather give Josako to kids sooner. Yeah.
1: You don't want to... You know, it's you, funny...
0: You don't want you don't want to introduce them
1: to Spiral to Uzumaki?
0: <laughs> a little bit of IRL. This is going to totally get me in trouble. But I'm in the middle of interviewing for jobs and positions. And I, I don't hide this podcast. I probably don't mention this one as much as I do my other pods. But this one eventually comes up in conversation. <laughs> and I was in conversation with a very senior person about a very important role. And I mentioned this podcast and I got home at night and I was like, oh, shit what's in the feed it's drifting classroom it's not batman two geeks talking about batman it was like drifting classroom and i was like oh god (laughs) if that's the first thing people listen to (laughs) i'm so fucked
1: oh drifting classroom wasn't so bad it's probably the josh simmons one that that'll probably get you but you weren't even you weren't on that one you quit in disgust so it's all good at least at least people know that you're somebody of like strong moral fiber People don't listen
0: to the full one hour of the podcast. <laughs> they just look at the headline and go for it from there. This podcast is going to get one of us canceled, Ryan. Well, what? We'll, we'll we'll go down in flames
1: together. Why not? We started this podcast together. Let's <laughs> let's end it together in an explosion.
0: <laughs> the, who's Thelma? And who's Louise? But Ryan, I do have one more very important question I need to ask you.
1: Oh yeah, I I bet I know what it is, but ask it
0: anyway. Oh. Who's your favorite Spice Girl? But I, I don't know how you would know that I was going to ask you that question. Who is my favorite Spice Girl? I never really had a favorite. The answer is always sporty. Okay, let's just come on, dude.
1: I'll tell you, who I, I, I've, got, I've got favorite members of Blackpink.
0: <laughs> I don't even know what that is. Oh, never mind then. Next time we do a Korean book, we'll get into that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ryan, the real question. As you can imagine, what are we reading next week? Next week, we are going to be reading The Complete Killer, or sorry, The Complete
1: The Killer, by the French team Luc Yakaman and Mats. And this is basically about a French assassin who's having, oh, let's just call it an existential crisis. And so I'm actually really looking forward to, to reading this. It's going to be a bit of a change of pace. It's definitely more in the action thriller category than what we just read but i think we're gonna have a great time uh reading it and discussing it
0: nothing says fun like homicidal existential crisis
1: look if you don't have homicidal existential crises the comics industry would just not exist
0: (laughs) two words have never been spoken And that's our show. Like what you heard? Be sure to share with a friend, subscribe, and leave us a review wherever you get your favorite podcasts. See lots of pretty pictures of the books we read at QTDcomics.com. And since we're sure no one's listening, prove us otherwise. Shoot an email over to say what I got right and what Ryan got wrong at QTDcomics at gmail.com. Give you a social media handle, but we're old and that feels like too much work. I'm Roman Segel.
1: And I am and have always been Ryan Jones.